In part two, the ever-creative Zen master, philosopher, author, and activist, Dr. David Loy, offers fresh perspectives on the opportunities and challenges of our time. He begins with the contrasting our godlike technology with our primate brains and the need for a new understanding of spiritual practice, which will enable us to address the social and global issues of our time, and talks about becoming not a bodhisattva, but also an ecosattva. He emphasizes the importance of keeping don't know mind in the face of our impending crisis and how Buddhism in particular and spirituality in general can contribute to facing the critical issues of this time and future times. And we discuss how all our work can be done as a karma yoga, a spiritual practice in which we use our work and activity in the world as the basis for our growing up and waking up. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. There's something that's just come up a couple of times. Uh, I want to come back to the ecological issues and because they're so, so crucial and the issue of our time and part of your work. But I'd also just like to take a little detour into something a little futuristic. And that is we have these industries working and playing on our desire and our sense of lack. We and in some ways technology is being used in the service of that. And we are already, I just did a course as part of my continuing medical education on internet pornography. You know, it used to be a male came into your office complaining of erectile dysfunction. Okay, do you have diabetes? Do you have high blood pressure? Now the first question you ask is how much porn do you watch on TV? We are about to move into an age of virtual reality. And if we think internet addiction is a problem, we ain't seen nothing. And the evolutionary psychologists have a concept of supernormal stimuli and evolutionary traps. That is, we species can evolve and respond to environmental stimuli. And in certain cases, the stimuli can become hypertrophied, particularly with technology and become what are called supernormal stimuli, which can then become an evolutionary trap. And the classic mm. example is the Australian jewel beetle, the males of which find in beer bottles, of which in Australia there are an awful lot thrown around, a supernormal sexual stimulus and try to mate with these beer bottles till they die and the, desiccate in the sun, leaving the females unimpregnated. Is that a metaphor for where we are heading with technology used in the service, creating more and more effective super stimuli? I mean, if the fundamental problem is this sense of lack that we were talking about, which haunts the sense of self, once you add to that the high tech and how the high tech is going to take advantage of that in many different ways to sell us, to absorb our attention, to addict us, I think that's a very potent situation. I don't know if I mentioned earlier this quotation from E.O. Wilson, who said, you know, our, our fundamental problem is that we have 
Paleolithic emotions, or I would say Paleolithic drives, medieval institutions, hierarchical, and godlike technology. And yeah. when you put those together, you know, it does create a real problem. So in a way, the problem remains the same. You could say from the Buddhist perspective, the delusion of separate self, it remains the same insofar as that delusion is haunted by sense of inadequacy. I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Something is missing. When you add the high tech component to that, then it becomes really, really scary. Yeah. yeah, and with our technology increasing, it, you've written about this, we're in a new phase in human history where the fir- for the first time, the major threats to our well-being and even survival are not natural disasters of one kind or another, but they're human-created disasters. And so the state of the world increasingly reflects the state of our minds uh, with our psychological and spiritual dysfunctions writ large upon the planet. This, these crises have been, uh, I think, perhaps the primary focus of your work over the last few years. And you've created the term eco-dharma, and we'd both love to hear you talk about this. I have to correct you about coining the term eco-dharma. Actually, okay. I've borrowed that term from a center in northeast Spain. A friend, Guyapati, along with some others, founded this eco-dharma center. And I thought that's a wonderful term. So I've used it both in my book and also I'm one of the co-founders of the uh, new Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center up in the mountains above Boulder. So uh, I can't I can't claim credit for the term, just stealing it or as I prefer to say, borrowing it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, I think it's a really it it's a really wonderful term that expresses this great challenge for spiritual traditions, such as Buddhism. You know? mm. I mean, it's like one of the things practitioner scholars like myself are concerned about is what is it within the Buddhist tradition that can help us understand and respond to this particular kind of situation? Part of the challenge there, of course, is that the Buddha didn't say anything about increasing carbon levels or even extinction events, right? Those weren't his problems. So, it's not as though the traditional Buddhist teachings address those in any direct way, but rather that nonetheless there are certain sort of aspects of Buddhist teachings that we can extrapolate and use. So that, that's one of the big things. The other side of it, though, is remembering that Buddhism has changed sometimes quite radically when it's gone to a new culture. It doesn't just impose itself, but it interacts with local traditions. And that's why it's probably still going. Exactly. And I think Chan or Zen is a classic example. When Mahayana Buddhism went to China, it had this natural affinity with Taoism. And that was really what created Chan, or as we say in Japan, Zen. So now Buddhism faces its greatest challenge ever. It comes to a modern world that's not only secular, not only high-tech, not not only materialistic consumerist, but it also seems to be self-destructing. Yes. What does Buddhism have to say about that? Ken Wilber said recently, and this is something really struck me, he said that the solution to all of our problems that confront us are developmental. And it takes a certain level of development even to care about the environment. You know, just don't care. If you look at areas or, or reservations that have been taken over by addiction and alcoholism and meth, there's trash everywhere. I mean, these are Native Americans, people that we would think would be that close to the earth, but they've been devolved through these drugs and alcohol, and so there's no concern. So it seems like the meta-concern of Buddhism or all of us in the world should be to develop enough of us 
in a good way so that we can actually bring all this brilliance and creativity that we're doing all kinds of strange things and bring it to the aid of our species and all beings. How do we do that? We do that through practice, right? Through, through meditation. It just seems that perhaps our goal in the exterior world is to create the kind of conditions with sufficiency of, of food and education and healthcare and mental health and all of these things. So we create the conditions that more of us can evolve into happy concern bodhisattvas, if you will. And I know that maybe that's pie in the sky, but is there is there anything else to do at this point? You know, the one thing that I would add to that, or maybe it's just saying the same, just another aspect of that is what I just said a moment ago was how, you know, we, we sort of look to the Buddhist tradition, including Buddhist practices to help us. But the other thing that's almost as much in my mind is what does this situation imply for how we understand and practice Buddhism? How does Buddhism need to change? And that's what connects with that earlier point about uh, ontological dualism. You know, how much does seeking Nibbana or even dwelling in emptiness, how much is that at this point becoming problematical in that we, we have to have a new understanding? I think a new understanding of practice. And that's, again, kind of linking everything together. That's what I understand why I think the bodhisattva, ecosattva path is so important, because it understands that our practice isn't simply what's going on in our cushions, but it's our activism as well, which is integrating selflessness yeah. into how we actually relate to other people and the structures that are also so problematical today. And I'm impressed by both of you. I mean, you're both serious Buddhists. Uh, in your lineage and, and just the work that you've done and the practice you've done and the books you've written, teachings you've done. You're really humble, too. <laughs> and you're really willing to have these conversations about what do we need to do? How do we need to evolve? How do we need to change to meet the survival issues, the issues, the critical issues of our time? But you're actually willing to evolve, to become relevant and to become part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. Mm. And that's, it's very admirable. I guess it's part of the Dharma or part of the practice that keeps you in that space that you're willing to do that. I think it's important to sort of keep the, the don't know mind mm -hmm. part of it. Well, especially nowadays, I think when, to be honest, you know, those of us who really study what's going on ecologically, it looks, it looks pretty grim. It yes. looks quite difficult. What we're in for mm -hmm. is, yeah. is, is, is it, it may be quite soon and uh, it, it could be quite bad or it will be quite bad, it looks like. So nonetheless, there's this aspect of, of don't know mind, that we don't really know what's possible. We don't really know what's coming down or how it's going to come down or how what's possible today may be very different from what's possible tomorrow as more people wake up to what's really going on. And I think that's happening pretty quickly, especially this generational shift, yes. you know, mm. the young people who are going to have to live through this. People like Greta and the Absolutely. Friday school strikes, yes. you know, they're really coming on strong, and that's clearly what, what is needed. Yeah. A few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, looking at the contributions of Buddhism to these great issues of our time. Could you say a little more about what you see as some of the potential contributions here? Hmm. Well... As I alluded to earlier, uh, I think perhaps the most important is, is this slightly revised version of the Bodhisattva path, in the sense that whereas traditionally in Asia, Bodhisattva activity was understood, I think, I mean, sometimes you would help 
like after floods or fires or something. But for the most part, the highest bodhisattva activity was helping other people awaken. Mm -hmm. And now we're realizing that the dukkha we're facing isn't just individual, as we've been saying, but it has to involve us making efforts to address the structural, the institutionalized dukkha, such as we refer to with, uh, say, corporations. Mm -hmm. One small example, I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion here Mm -hmm. in Colorado, and it's interesting, there's a pretty strong movement of Extinction Rebellion Buddhists, quite a few in England. Interesting. Would you say a little more about, maybe those who haven't heard about Extinction Rebellion, what that is? So Extinction Rebellion, it's amazing, it's a new movement, it's only been around not much longer than a year, and it's, as the title implies, these are people who are becoming more informed about what is happening ecologically, and not just about climate. I think that's one of the things you have to emphasize. We inevitably focus on climate, and carbon and methane and such. But ultimately, the ecological crisis is much bigger. As as I say, the climate is the tip of an iceberg that includes species extinction. We seem to be well into the sixth grade extinction event. And you think of all the toxins in the air, in the water, in our earth, in our bodies, plastics, and to be honest, uh, population. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, no one wants to talk about it, but the world population is like three and a half times what it was when I was born. We used to talk about it 20 years ago, and we we stopped talking about it for some reason. Well, because it, it was kind of subverted by white people saying people of brown colors and other poor countries should have less kids. And I think there's been kind of a reaction against that. And of course, other people will say, well, if you, you know, you have enough food, it's just about distributing it. I mean, I think personally that that's evading what is a real issue. Maybe we could survive. Maybe we could actually feed 8 billion people. But the real question is, what's the best for the earth? Yeah. You know, can we have death control, i.e. modern medicine without birth control? You know, given that making babies and connected rituals are like our favorite activity, mm-hmm. we have to find some way to sort of deal with that. You're making an important point here that, yes, global warming, global climate change gets all the press, and it's a part of a much larger, more complex, interconnected, what's called a wicked problem, a problem which d- doesn't necessarily have a simple one solution. That's right. Yeah. Right. And you as a psychologist know better than we do that this whole issue of climate grief has become a major one insofar as people are waking up to what's actually happening and getting freaked out with the realization that we can't depend on our governments because the system is kind of paralyzed. It just sort of keeps blundering ahead and it doesn't seem able to to do what's necessary. So that's why you have movements like Extinction Rebellion, going back to what you were asking about. It's a movement, a lot of young people involved, people who are realizing that because we can't depend on governments to do it, we're going to have to engage in direct action, that is to say nonviolent actions. Famously, last April and again in September, October, they were having massive events in in England where it started. So, you know, basically saying that business as usual is leading only to absolute catastrophe. So these are people willing to put their bodies on the line to sort of stop the business as usual and say, you know, we've got to come to grips with this. And in the meantime, we elected a leader, maybe some help from our Russian friends, that has been trying to dismantle every environmental protection law on the book. You know, it's like, it's hard. 
And David, in 2016, uh, when uh, after the last presidential elections, you wrote an article of the Bodhisattva path in the age of Trump, looking at what is the responsibility and opportunity for service and contribution of the deepest kind at this time when of great global crisis and of political turmoil, cultural turmoil. That was an important article. And I know I and friends would love to know, has your thinking evolved since then? Well, one of the major points about the article was, in a way, the election of Trump clarifies the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, say, had Hillary been elected, given her Wall Street connections or the the general Democratic connections with Wall Street, uh, I mean, the Democratic Party was once a labor of once a party of labor, but you know that's long gone. So, would they really engage sufficiently? And in a way. I think I've been shocked, like many of us, just how badly things have deteriorated during Trump's time. I mean, we knew it would be difficult. I don't know that we realized it would be anything this bad or that he was this problematic, a narcissist. Sorry, I don't want to get too much too much into the politics here. But the basic point was, and I think this still applies, that we now have a better sense of what the problem is. Of course, the kind of reverses that he's been engaged in just makes that more. What am I trying to say? I think the election of Trump kind of shook us all up because there's often a kind of complacency. And it's it's easy in a kind of consumerist life uh, culture just to kind of sit back and to sort of enjoy. And I think Trump has just sort of put that on the line for us all that that we we can't do it. We have to we have to find where we where we can engage with the problems that he has highlighted by not only not helping us deal with them, but making them much worse. And you used the word complacency now, which is something you used in that article. And you point out, yes, in our consumer culture, the challenge of not being complacent. And I know for myself, that's certainly an issue. I have a very fortunate, favored life, um, much more so than the vast majority of people. And I remember when I went to India as working in Mother Teresa's centers, and it just, it blew me out of the water and provided a lot of motivation to come back and be more engaged. And I'm aware of the kind of soporific, cumulative effect of living a very comfortable life. Could you say something about that? In a way, I think that I'll, I'll probably be just reinforcing what I said before, that I think the kinds of social breakdowns and ecological breakdowns are are happening in a way so that people can still live that kind of comfortable, consumerist, soporific life, but you have to work harder at it. And of course, with Fox News, it's possible to do that. You've got a sort of more and more of a bubble uh, Mm -hmm. that's sort of disconnected, a, a kind of fantasy world. I mean, one does get the sense that most people are living in kind of a fantasy world because at some level, they're just assuming things are going to continue on in the way that yeah. they have. And the big social and ecological crisis, it's, it's clear that it, it, can't, it can't go on. Yeah. 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 I think it's been interesting after, you know, those of us baby boomers, I was born in 47, so, you know, pretty soon after the war. In one way, especially if you're white male American, I mean, my goodness, you won the lottery of history. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
modern dentistry and college education and the jobs yeah. and economic growth. And it just seemed like, you know, more and more democracy. We beat fascism and then we beat Soviet totalitarian. You know, it's like, oh, progress. And now we look back and it all seems like this weird kind of unsustainable bubble that we are all living in kind of a fantasy of, of what that was and, and what the consequences were going to be. Because perhaps our inner development didn't match our outer development. For sure. And the inner needs to catch up like yep. right now. Does the bodhisattva path begin when you sit for the first time and decide to engage in the path? Or do you have to get to a certain point where you become a bodhisattva or it's just the choice to do the work? That's a good question. I, I don't know if it works the same way mm -hmm. with everybody. You know, in the Tibetan tradition, they emphasize the uh, bodhicitta, arising the bodhicitta. That is to say, the desire or the urge or the, the commitment to awaken, not just for yourself, but for everyone. When, when does that arise? I mean, I think for some people very early, but I think, you know, for others, maybe quite late. Yeah, we, we were talking uh, yesterday about what motivates us to practice. And in that conversation, the, the across the board was pain, 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 pain. Yeah, yeah. But what keeps us on the path, and it came at responsibility. So, know, so. It moves from the personal to the all sentient beings. That's the path. For both you guys, I've been recommendations that a lot of, I mean, the more awake you become, I suppose, to the world around you, the more you begin to feel the pain of the times. And, and what's going on. So, and so what do you do with that? Either you, you try to numb out and just avoid it and say, you know, I'll try to live in my bubble and have some fun on the deck of the Titanic, you know, before it goes down. Or do I start blowing shit up, you know, or do I just become cynical and angry and say, fuck it to everything? Or do I get busy making the changes yeah. that I can make. And of course, it starts with yourself, but then the practice to prepare you for the performance of going out in the world and somehow not alienating, realizing we are Donald Trump. He's me. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to just unfold a couple of things you said there mm -hmm. along the way, because there's so much there. First, you made a distinction which feels really important, but is not widely appreciated as a distinction between desire and craving is what I, the way I would put them. Okay. And so often the Buddhist term for what I would translate as craving is translated as desire and gives the implication we're going to get rid of all desires. And mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, I've had the privilege of being around some very remarkable advanced practitioners with significant degrees of awakening. Uh, they've got their desires and there's certainly not the grabbing and craving that the, run so many of our lives. So that's an important distinction. Then you made the application to the skillful kind of practice that is called for in our times and is what to me seems like one of the hallmarks of spiritual service. And that is that it's done without the usual attachment to the outcome that marks most social activism. And you know, we can all bow to every social activist, and we've probably also seen a lot of burned out social activists. And the path which seems to speak to this most directly is the one you mentioned, the Bhagavad Gita being the one of the great texts of Hinduism and of yoga. There, it offers among the different yogas, karma yoga, the yoga of work and action in the world, in which one uses one's work and one's service as one's spiritual path. And 
the core, the, in the classic descriptions, there are three key elements to, the, to Karma Yoga. One is one offers one's work to something larger, traditionally the divine, but it can be just to a larger aspiration or goal. Second one does one's work as impeccably as possible. But the knife edge, which makes it such a cutting edge spiritual practice, one simultaneously attempts to let go of attachment to the how things turn out. And it's that which pairs away the ego attachments and the ego reinforcement for one's work and instead makes it a, a practice. And it seems that, you know, there's this ancient idea that which the historian Arnold Toynbee brought into prominence in his survey of world history when he looked across cultures and, and centuries, he found the one common characteristic of those people who had most contributory impact on humankind was their life exhibited what he called the pattern of cycle of withdrawal and return. <laughs> that they, with, for, at some stage in their life, they withdrew from conventional life. They went deeply into themselves, looked at the fundamental issues of existence, came to some sort of understanding, realization, then came back into the world to make their contribution. And it seems like it's that cycle withdrawal and return. It's not just necessarily one great cycle withdrawal and return. It could, ideally, maybe it's done many times over a life. But, but then contribution becomes a going into oneself so as to go more effectively out into the world and a going out into the world so as to go deeper into oneself and continuing that cycle until, as you point out, self and world uh, distinction dissolves. Beautifully said. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, that, that withdrawal return, that's essential. Like withdrawal, uh, say, do, doing a retreat, doing a Zen session for a week or something. There, that's a withdrawal. It is. You know, yeah. you're focusing on the meditation. And the return, well, maybe if I'm engaged in a political action, there may be some periods when I'm hardly meditating at all. And that's mm -hmm. okay. That's not the focus. I'll know there'll be other opportunities. But then there's the more engagement. You know, and, yeah. and ideally, though, you are doing it as part of your practice. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not meditation in that, but it's also doing it non-attachment to results, which is karma mm -hmm. yoga, which is part of the practice. I don't know if you know that story, uh, Bob Thurman, everyone talking about practice all the time. Everyone says practice, practice. What I want to know is uh, when is the performance? And I think this pattern explains the performance. In other words, our, our, the way we actually live in the world is the performance that's also a practice. Yeah. yeah. And it feels like at this stage, when frankly, the very future of our civilization may be at stake, and that the, the great question of our time is, can we preserve our civilization? Can we prevent untold amounts of suffering for large segments of humankind, humanity? Practice is now for the first time done within this context. Exactly. So one of the ways Buddhism has to change is practice that's in, that has to engage with social ecological issues. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, it was just personally, as a very sensitive, empathic person, and I take on all this stuff. One of the things that happens in meditation for me, not always, but often enough to keep me in the game, is there is a point of it's all perfect. 
it's really bloody okay. Even though when my periscope goes up again in the world, it's awful disaster of suffering and everything. At some level, there seems to be, it's okay. Deeply, deeply okay. And it is that experience that informs me, that allows me to go back and engage in the world and engage in my, as, as well as I'm able to. So, yeah. you know, that quotation from Shinryu Suzuki, he would say to his students, you know, you're all perfect just as you are, but you could use a little improvement too. <laughs> and, and so that's the that's the paradox. It's, yeah. it's the two dimensions. Because if you just live and everything is perfect, in Zen we sometimes talk about clinging to emptiness. You know, there's yeah. there's no better, there's no worse, there's no gain, no loss, no life, no death. You know, the unborn and all that. Exactly. In, in that realm, but that that's ignoring the world of phenomena, yeah. the, the form. I think the real challenge. The deepest challenge for our practice is integrating the two. Exactly. It's perfect just as it is now. That's why when I do the best I can, I can let go and not be attached to it. At the same time, I'm motivated because the world can use more than little improvement too. Yeah. Um, David, we've covered an enormous amount today and uh, and it's been just, it's, it's been an absolute delight. Is there anything else you would like us to explore? Good question. I could say a little bit about what I'm working on now. Please, that, that'll be wonderful. Be yeah, I don't actually have a title. There's a, another book, and I think maybe a final book. There's enough books in this world, right? But anyway, one more. I'm very fascinated by evolutionary psychology, and I think mm. with us generation, that has become really, really important as far as giving us a lot of insight into our, our motivations. It, it kind of links pretty closely to Buddhism in certain ways. You know, the Buddha never said, there's nowhere in the Pali Canon where he says our nature is basically good. What he does say is we have positive tendencies, you know, generosity, loving kindness. We also have negative problematical ones that cause dukkha, that cause bad karma, greed, ill will, delusion. We go back to the three poisons again. And the interesting thing there is from an evolutionary point of view, those three poisons would have played sometimes a role in getting your genes into the next generation. So they're built into us at some deep level. In fact, both sides, because on the individual selection level, it's me against you getting our genes. But on the group level, then the more compassionate, you know, what works for the benefit of the group, unfortunately also often at the cost of another group. Mm -hmm. but, but the, but the ba basic idea here, which is consistent with what the Buddha said, is that we have both of these built into us. And what I'm fascinated by looking historically is that going back to the Axial Age, I see that as, you know, so you have people like Jesus and the Buddha, this withdrawal and return. They weren't part of a priesthood or anything. They were doing it individually and bringing back this new message. And what I see going on there is cultural evolution's attempt to compensate for some of the problematic things that were built into us by our biological, psychological evolution, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. That was the axial age, really important. Uh, and yet, historically, it failed. The institutions co-opted those teachings. The teachings survive. But if you look, say, at the way the Christianity evolved, say Christendom, the Roman Catholic Church, and so forth, or the empires, they basically didn't work very well. It's like somehow the, the teachings were appropriated for more power uh, mm -hmm. and so forth. So I think the challenge for us today is recuperating the best of the Axial Age teachings, 
universal compassion, right? You think of what the Buddha taught, met the metta. You think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and so forth. Incredible. But the way the tribalism of religions worked, we lost that. We have to recuperate it. And in a way that manages to avoid the kind of dualisms that I'm behaving myself in order to qualify for heaven after I die, or I'm being good now, I'm getting lots of merit, or I'm, you know, so I'll have a better rebirth after I die, something like that. I think we need to build on the emphasis on this world and that the, the, the challenge is not trying to transcend it unless we understand that in a more metaphorical way as transforming how we experience it. I've spent a lot of time in the past, like in the non-duality book, sort of showing how, say, Vedanta, Taoism, Buddhism can be understood to be pointing at the same kind of experience. I think if we look at the Abrahamic mystics, we can also see a strong tradition of that. So I guess I see the whole book as trying to look at the evolution of religion in a way that religion has the potential to be a much better partner in helping us address the kind of problems. Because of the way it's institutionalized, it often is part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So the book will try to sort of outline this new paradigm, or I don't know how much of a new paradigm it is, but clarify, mm -hmm. clarify the paradigm. Yeah, sense. And in some ways, this is part of a, an ongoing project of each age, a, re, a revivification and finding the contemplative core at the heart of a message and bringing it to the contemporary world in the language and concepts and framework that it makes sense. So, and, and again, the great challenge, spiritual and otherwise, of our age is finding the way to integrate personal individual transformations, such as Buddhism has been working for, with social transformation, with the realization that either without the other these days, that faith fatal, as it were, to, to the future. Yeah. And, and perhaps the evolutionary pressures are so strong right now. Something is going to emerge, something yeah. new, yeah. unexpected, who knows? Um, Greta. Yeah, Greta. Greta. You know, uh, I don't know if you know um, uh, Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed Unrest. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, what is he basically saying? There's this new phenomenon, a large, huge number. It was at 1.5 or now over 2 million groups, nonprofits springing up spontaneously, as it were, to work for social justice and sustainability. And what I love so much about that book is the metaphor of the immune system. This is the immune, we can understand it as this is the immune system of the earth springing up to protect itself, to heal itself. Greta. Beautiful. Greta, Greta. Is, is a great ecosatva, right? I mean, something is happening. And I don't know, it's not a matter of taking, how to say it. We, we have a certain kind of genetic le legacy. Mm. And in a way, it, it, it's what we are. In a way, we, we have to accept it, right? Mm -hmm. We're not our own fault, as Wes Nisker mm -hmm. said. You are not your fault. At the same time, we can't avoid, avoid you know, the responsibility of engaging in the way that Paul Hawking talks about and which Greta exemplifies. There is this immune system. And I really see Buddhism, and especially socially engaged Buddhism, as maybe having a small role to play in contributing to this global movement, and maybe contributing most of all the emphasis on combining personal with social practice. Maybe teaching, look, activists, do it, but 
you you know it's really important to ground your activism in your own personal practice as well because we need both the great challenge is always integrating them both yeah, very much and there's a concept that Carl Jung introduced which uh, feels very appropriate in applying to you the, the Gnostic intermediary a Gnostic intermediary is as he described it to you to refer to the translator of the I Ching, Wilhelm, and said, Wilhelm had imbibed the wisdom of the I Ching so deeply he was able to transmit it from his own experience. And so I think of a Gnostic intermediary as someone who goes into a wisdom, a tradition, imbibes the wisdom so deeply and learns the language and conceptual system the people they're trying to communicate to so as to create an aha experience which both makes it comprehensible and legitimizes it and i think you you've been referring to the challenge of being a gnostic intermediary bringing this venerable wisdom to the west but also across eras so this is the first time in history we've had to transmit a a wisdom tradition not only across cultures but across eras from a from an agricultural to a postmodern world with incredible challenges and david i just think of you as a, a wonderful gnostic intermediary bringing <laughs> bringing the wisdom of buddhism to the great issues of our time and translating these often archaic ideas in into the western idioms that can make them make these ideas comprehensible and available and inspirational to us all so i want to thank you enormously your work has uh, touched me for probably 20 years i know i'm far from the only person you have uh, a lot of a lot of my friends uh, uh, have been touched by your work and i was actually introduced to it by some of some of these friends so Thank you very much for all you've done. Thank you for what you're doing at this incredibly knife-edge time we find ourselves in. So deeply appreciate your work. We'll, uh, of course, take your website and list up some of your books for our listeners. And uh, thank you very much for being with us uh, for this episode where we've been able to enjoy this time with David Loy. Please come back and join us again. I think that this kind of conversation, the kinds of concerns that we're all sharing, is that this is that knife edge work. Uh, so thank you both. Thank you all. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.